0: In the wake of the storm,
1: welcome back to Small Talk with the Lees. This is episode 26, part 6 of the CES Letter, where we talk about the fundamental truth claims of the LDS Church. And today we are going to talk about some spicy stuff. Um, Within this episode, we're going to touch on the profit puzzle question, which basically deals with Joseph Smith's reputation. And in the next episode, we're going to continue that discussion. But in this episode, we're going to focus mainly on the book of Abraham as a catalyst. Or in other words, the papyri acting as a catalyst for Joseph Smith in the production of the book of Abraham. So I think we give what I would say is possibly one of the strongest arguments that a believer could have on the catalyst theory. Uh, that being said, let us know what you guys think. If this is a valid argument, do you think the evidence holds up? And uh, be sure to comment and subscribe to our channel. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts. So, hope you guys enjoy.
0: As it stumbled out, it said Hey, I got another chance I was living like a zombie, heading a trance Everything.
1: Welcome back to Small Talk with the Lees. This is part six and we're talking about the catalyst theory and up to this point um, if you've been kind of following our our series you might have thought that we have been pretty like critical of the orthodox position just based on what we've talked about on the book of Abraham arguments. Today I kind of want to want us to discuss about the catalyst theory, uh, which is an argument that kind of allows us to accept Joseph Smith as inspired in his translation, but reject the historicity of the book of Abraham or not reject it. Really, it doesn't matter in the catalyst theory. But I think up until this point, we have to really look at at where we've came. Um, Jan Ships, she's a non-Mormon but she is one of the most reputable scholars in Mormon studies. And she kind of coined the phrase, the prophet puzzle. And I really like what she said, because this is in like 1974, and the puzzle hasn't been solved. It's been 46 years. The puzzle is basically that um, in her paper on dialogue, she presents that we need to understand Joseph Smith in a more comprehensive way. And we need to understand it in a way that is resilient and robust to the actual evidence. And so she kind of presents this question of uh, who the prophet Joseph Smith really is. And we do not understand him. And by not understanding him, we cannot understand Mormonism. And so that was presented 46 years ago. And. Up until now, there's been several kind of theories percolating around, but nothing's really kind of gained traction. And so I don't expect us to solve the profit puzzle problem in this episode today. But I think if we can kind of hash out and make it more clear, maybe for those, you know, especially for those who who have been listening and, you know, they, they kind of feel troubled by what they've learned about the book of Abraham, but they want to maintain their faith. And and I kind of want us to be able to discuss maybe the strongest arguments in favor of a believing view, um, as well as entertaining the other views. And so, to sum up the prophet puzzle, kind of in the way that I've understood it, is you know we've gotten to the point. Um, a lot of people debate over the Book of Mormon and its translation. And I really see that as unnecessary because we have the book of Abraham, and it's a lot more clear what Joseph Smith is doing here. Um, although it's not perfectly clear at all. And so, you know, the position that we've dug ourselves in really is a kind of a, a nasty one to get out of. Because what we've established here is that most likely Joseph Smith thought that or at least we know that he claimed that the Egyptian papyri had the book of Abraham on it and he attempted to translate it. And what he produced um, is what we have in the pro of great price, but it does not match any of the papyri we have. And if you accept our premises in the last argument, or at least my premises in the last argument that John Gee and Milstein are incorrect in their assertion, That there is a missing scroll or a long scroll theory, and that we have the papyri that we need to examine, then you're kind of stuck in this rut, in this question that nobody even wants to touch with a 10 foot stick. And it's really this you know, if Joseph Smith claimed to translate the book of Abraham from papyri, but it wasn't actually on the papyri, he's either one of three things. Okay, here's the paradox, the prophet puzzle. One is Joseph Smith is lying, he's lying to us, right? The second one is that he is being deceived. He's being duped, like he's delusional. He thinks he's translating something when he's really not. The third is that he's evil and he has malintention to gain power, prestige of large following, you know, later on you hear the arguments about polygamy and how he wanted sex. So that's kind of the three camps that you will kind of see people commenting on this issue. The only problem is the reason why this is a paradox, I think, in my opinion, is that it's so starkly contrasted by the movement that Joseph Smith started, which is Mormonism and how we know it today. Right. Most of us would think of Mormonism in a uh, better light. And especially those of us who live the Mormon experience, uh, we we see that there's this this controversy is that such a seemingly flawed person could produce such a beautiful system of belief. And so that's kind of the paradox um, that I wanted to present. And I think it's more complicated than just any one of those views. And so I kind of want to get a more nuanced um, opinion on this from, from kind of our panel today. So let's talk about I guess let's just jump in. We're going to talk about the prophet puzzle in light of the book of Abraham. And like I said, we don't have to even get into the book of Mormon to answer this or to address this question. And so let's start with the catalyst theory. Um, Basically, the catalyst theory, which is um, what the LDS church has outlined in their gospel topics essays they've allowed for room for the go- for the catalyst theory and not only that bh uh Terrell givens actually recently gave an interview at benchmark books and he argued that the church has been hasn't just moved the goalposts to sneak in the catalyst theory so to say uh because of recent scholarship on the book of abraham rather he claims that since 19 19- 11 1912 1913 so about a hundred over a hundred years ago that top intellectual scholars of the lds church and leaders in correlated well they didn't have correlation but in publicized works like the improvement era have actually argued that quote uh this is terrell gibbon's quote that they have that joseph smith failed as a translator but succeeded as a prophet so that's basically the catalyst theory. Is that what the papyri were? Although it was not uh, directly related to the Book of Abraham, it allowed Joseph Smith to have a revelatory experience. It catalyzed the revelatory process in order for him to produce the Book of Abraham, which was still inspired by God. The the principles and the doctrines that he wrote. The religious truth that he presented was still correct um, even if the papyri weren't actually historical documents so we can talk about the the pros and and cons of that a lot of people um, maybe that's it I've heard a lot of people complain that this is not enough to kind of keep them in the church let's say this theory and a lot of people actually argue that what drove them out of the church after reading the CES letter which talks about all these translation problems is not that there were problems but it was the lack of kind of strong arguments from the apologists at Fair Mormon or Maxwell Institute so today we're going to kind of maybe see what are what is the strongest argument uh for the catalyst theory and how does it like what light does that shed on the prophet puzzle about Joseph Smith either being a liar a fraud or evil, because I don't think it's that compli- uh, I don't think it's that simple. So, I like. I kind of like uh, what you wrote, Alejandro. You you sent me an essay um, on the catalyst theory and kind of thoughts you had on the psychology behind it. Maybe you could share just about the catalyst theory and what what in the world does it mean? If you think that Joseph Smith sincerely believed that he was indeed translating papyri. How, how does that make sense? Like, how can someone believe that they're doing something when they're actually not?
2: Um, yeah, good question. So uh, I'm going to try and do this as clearly and succinctly as I can.
1: Okay. And this is so, open okay. to everyone. So, like, feel free to chime in, Andre and Justin, anytime. So.
2: Okay. So um, one of the, when I was reading over the catalyst theory and what it was is, um one of the things that they brought up was that uh, the catalyst theory was was a i it's sort of like a category uh, that's how the church sort of describes it It's like the catalyst theory is a category we put around what Joseph Smith did and how he was able to produce the book of abraham and um one of the features of the catalyst theory is that Joseph Smith would engage in like reflection and and contemplation and meditation, and then that would he would sort of um prepare himself or or get himself in a state in which he could receive some some type of revelatory experience which then produced the content of the of the book of abraham and it didn't necessarily well there's well okay yeah actually it was in the tradition that it even states that um, the contents that just was produced one isn't necessarily like the a direct translation of the content on the scrolls and so it was kind of like a a revelation and and there was a processor method that catalyzed all of that. As I was using that. I've been doing a lot of research um, on my own um, about cognitive science. Um, and, and the research I was doing was sort of separate from this issue in this podcast. I've been doing this like for all of the past year. Um, and then it, I just found, I just found a connection between the two. And the, the thing that I was looking into was. This what, is
1: John Verveke's uh, lecture on meaning crisis right
2: right exactly so what the thing that that he's exploring is what he calls the cognitive continuum and what and what that is is that um the the mechanisms in your cognition that allow you to gain insight um, there's a continuum and those things start with things like um like you know you're unconscious so there's no insight there then like your everyday waking consciousness and then you have things like getting into the flow states uh, and then having insight moments. And then those things can be adaptive or exact, um, exacted um, to induce things like uh, mystical experiences, um, things that he, what he calls like transformative experiences. And then in even higher states of consciousness, um, there are things like um, transformative experiences and enlightenment experiences. And as I was doing the research on this, a lot of the practices or the strategies that people have used historically to get into those types of states are this, are similar things that Joseph Smith was engaging in. And then on top of that, the type, the, the way that people would describe higher states of consciousness is very similar to how um, Joseph Smith would describe his um, transformative and mystical experiences. And then...
1: So you said that the first vision is also kind of related to this, right? because I think that's yeah. important that, that we, we have to kind of, um, if you're of the belief that Joseph Smith never had any religious affiliation, kind of like the Fawn Brody view in her first edition of No Man Knows My History, then, uh, then, then you'd kind of fall with the evil side, right? The, the side of the prophet puzzle where Joseph Smith is just doing this for sheer power or pride. But if you think that he had some type of spiritual experience uh, as a young child, then we can better understand what's going on, maybe with this higher state of consciousness as he's producing the Book of Abraham.
2: Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example. We can go with the first vision example because I think the first vision is a super good example of how all this fits together. So when you read Joseph Smith's um, first vision. And how he was sort of drawn there. Um, you have to understand Joseph Smith, you know, as a child, as a youth, um, lives in like a funny community and, and also in a very religious community. But uh, but physically he had like a gimp, he had a problem with his leg in which he had a surgery. And so he was um constantly trying to overcome like that limitation, right?
1: So we know this as the the um Kind of, we, we were fed the, <laughs> the propaganda that Joseph Smith knew about the Word of Wisdom when he was like, I don't know how old, 10 or 12 or yeah. really young. And then so he didn't even take alcohol in order um, when he had the surgery on his when leg. Had
2: surgery.
1: So that account I, is probably false. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but the surgery is definitely real. And he, he spent like months, right, just immobilized and just doing nothing. Or well,
2: yeah and then and then after that he probably spent years right like recuperating from that because he was on crutches for a while and he had to like build up um his strength and and, uh, and i'll uh, i'll get into that in a minute so so what's happening is joseph smith is is constantly challenged by his limitations his physical limitations and he's constantly trying to overcome those because he's um he has work to do he also you know plays and he's a kid and no one wants to be limited. So that, what that's called in psychological terms, that's called scaffolding. And what that is is let's say you're trying to teach someone something. And so you give them material or a, a, a task that's just a little bit harder than what they're capable of but not super difficult. And that allows the learner to, I guess, like stretch themselves a bit more and then challenge themselves. And that is known to produce like greater uh, growth or greater learning growth let's say, right? So what was, the, also,
1: what was the scaffolding or like the building blocks for Joseph Smith?
2: So for Joseph Smith, it was the, the overcoming the, his, his physical disabilities, learning okay. how to work on a farm despite his, his leg, um, or play with his friends despite his limitation. Right. So that scaffolding is also analogous to what, um, to what the, what induces the flow state. The flow state is a is a is a state of higher consciousness in where how it's induced is a good example is sort of like martial arts where you um, or rock climbing where you have a task and it's challenging enough that it stretches you but not boring enough or not easy enough that it bores you and you're sort of in like this Goldilocks zone and when you're when you're in that Goldilocks zone you sort of get in the zone and you feel like Anyone who's played sports has felt like that they're, they've been in the zone when they're, you know, when the game is intense and it's, and it's challenging, but you can do it and you end up performing the, at the best of your ability when you're in that zone. That's like the flow state, okay? So if you engage in, in getting into the flow state constantly, like you train your, your, your cognitive machinery to like to get into that state faster and to engage in like higher states of consciousness. And those, and according to John Verbecki's cognitive continuum, that's one of the long-term strategies that people can use to to enter into these higher states of consciousness. Another strategy that Verbecki posits is um, what he calls disruptive practices like meditation and um, contemplation and fasting. Joseph Smith, as you read, Like when he, when he sort of like wading through, uh, like these tough religious questions, he begins with the Bible and he begins to contemplate like deeply these things, you know? And so Joseph Smith, even as a youth, is already like, uh, a thoughtful, like contemplative person where he's as a young child, he's wrestling with these questions. Right?
1: So can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. So the, the higher states of consciousness, the flow state, um are these the same things like would people classify these as spiritual experiences or is there a difference and then also like just to make this relevant to the the Mm -hmm. listeners like i think this is where some people if they're looking at the profit puzzle they would say that's all just delusion right but i think we have a lot of psychological evidence now that that theory that spiritual experience is just a delusion or a, a fault like kind of an error in the brain that view has kind of disappeared almost yeah from the psychological well
2: a good question and yeah i'll I'll try to answer both of those um can you repeat the first question sorry
1: yeah so the higher states of consciousness is this going to oh, yeah. spiritual experience basically or is this or is this okay like a general thing
2: okay so the the higher states of consciousness are in a continuum right on the let's say on the left side of the continuum is sort of like unconsciousness and everyday the every day-to-day experience and it's not so spiritual but as you get more towards the right side of the continuum and and i'm i'm talking like past the flow state that's where things become more spiritual and people start to experience things like um mystical experience transformative experience and, and even enlightenment experiences and those the thing with those experiences to answer your second question um when people have higher states, of, experience higher states of consciousness, such as mystical, transformative, and enlightenment experiences. John Reiki says that their sense of what he called ontonormativity or realness, is heightened. And so when people have these experiences, when they have these experiences, to them, to the subject, that experience is more real than everyday lived experience. And so um, when people have these experiences, they, they they sense that it's more real, and then once they leave that experience, or once that experience is done, they'll over, they'll, um, they'll experience, or what, what's the word I'm looking for? They'll, they'll have like a radical transformation, and they, they rearrange their lives so that they can stay in contact with that realness, and that's a, that's a defining feature, and a persistent feature of of when people report higher states of consciousness. So it's, I actually they try to conform to that realness. Uh,
1: Yeah, I I read that part in your paper, and I I really enjoyed that, actually, because I think this actually described Joseph Smith really well. You know, we've got the problem of the first multiple first vision accounts, and we're going to cover that in in a coming episode soon. But I think I'm at least of the theory that Joseph Smith experienced some type of spiritual experience um, at a young age, you know, and Mm -hmm. after the surgery, but before the Book of Mormon uh, translation. So the thing is, like, I think what we're trying to describe here is that for those who want to believe that Joseph Smith is simply making up, um, let's say, revelations or visions, because there's difference. Uh, I was actually reading there's a difference between revelations and visions. Visions is where God uh, approaches man and man accepts. Revelation is where man approaches God and God uh, accepts. And so when Joseph Smith is having visions or revelatory experiences, including the translation of the book of Abraham, maybe, um, I think it's safe to say that we don't understand maybe the psychology of both 19th century uh, people and their worldview, as well as Joseph Smith's psychology, because if it's true that he had some deeply uh, life-changing spiritual experience, which I think you argue in your paper, uh, which we term the first vision, then he's going to constantly be trying to come back to that, that source that he realizes as more real as everyday life. I, I don't want people to think that we're being kooky here because what I think modern man needs to understand about spiritual experience, if you haven't experienced it before is look at the, the entheogenic research, look at the psychedelic research. You can take just one dose of psilocybin, um, I think that's the same one as the, like the Mario mushroom, the red and white mushroom. (laughs) Uh, You can take that and it provokes. People describe these experiences that they, that they encounter after taking psilocybin in a controlled clinical study. Um, They report this as one of the top three life-changing events, like five or 10 years after that. And that's Mm -hmm. like, next to your marriage and having your first child. So like we cannot underestimate like the reality that Joseph Smith experienced, you know, that onto normativity, I think you called it is Mm -hmm. that Joseph Smith, if he had a spiritual experience, he's on a whole different plane. Like he's, he's thinking of reality and religion in maybe different ways than even us as Latter-day Saints are thinking of it.
3: That's, that's what I would add on there. I would say that, it's so, you, you have to try so difficult. It's, it's so easy to try and simplify these things and be dismissive. Right. And say, you know, my worldview is this and, you know, anything that doesn't fit into this worldview, I, you know, I, I dismiss it or, or something, you know, we talked about the black and whiteness and because religious experiences uh, are, they are real and they're, you can't dismiss them as things of like delusion or uh, or illusion or, you know, these like make-believe things because what is reality and how our consciousness perceives it is such a complex issue that's really been happening since the beginning of time, of, of humans yeah. at least, that, you know, you can't just say, I, I dismissed this completely. I dismissed the first vision. It was all made up. And there's, you know, there's definitely something real to it because you look at him, how he led his life. You look at the, the witnesses, you look at the movement and everything like that and it's something that you can't oversimplify
0: yeah yeah totally and i think it's like a quick comment i was just gonna say like well i think brandon brought up about this like the psychedelic experiences a lot of people used to associate religious experience with that same type of thing where they're like it's just a couple of neurotransmitters firing in your brain it's not actually really you're not seeing it but touching on what andre said like what is real is so much more than what's the, the brain chemistry that's going on, and whether or not it's you know physically in front of our face may not like to us we might say okay like, if it didn't happen, then it's not real, but I think on a deeper level, what we see as real is that is which is most meaningful and and mind changing to us, so it's it's i guess for, for some respects it's hard to just dismiss Joseph Smith's experiences. Oh, it was, we yeah. don't know if it actually happened and, and so forth.
1: But yeah, and, yeah. I want and also real quick on Alejandro, your paper about the Kantian problem. I thought that was excellent. Yeah. Like what we're not arguing, we're not arguing here that God actually like physically, objectively appeared to Joseph. Like he came to Joseph Smith versus Joseph Smith just saw it. Like, because that is the Kantian question. You You can never know as a subjective being whether something objectively happened to you or you just experienced mm-hmm. it like your mind is in a vacuum. Everything's just a computer experience. You cannot know yeah. that as a subjective being. So we're not even trying to argue that here. I think what we're trying to talk about here is the sincerity of Joseph Smith's claim that he thought that these were papyri that had Book of Abraham writing on it, and he actually believed that. That's kind of the argument here.
3: Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up. Sorry, I just wanted to comment real quick. I think that uh an interesting case in all this is is probably looking at uh David Whitmer as like a case study, you know, and how he was also an experience with a lot of these, you know, he was there experiencing these spiritual uh manifestations and things like that. He's the one how-
1: the C S letter saw, he says that he saw Jesus as a deer, right?
3: Oh, I don't, oh, oh, did you say that in the CIS letter?
0: Yeah, they were pretty like. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it, had, I I, it was in the one. witness section when it was trying to dismiss David Whitmer as a credible witness. Yeah. I think there's something about that.
1: Well, like, sorry, I, I just threw that out there. But like to your point, yeah, he, he was a, you know, he, maybe not the type of spiritual person that we would like to think of spiritual as. But he, I'm sure he would consider himself a sincere spiritual person. If
3: that's what yeah, we're talking well about. go on and, well Andrew. My, Andrew. my point yeah my point is that uh as being you know having this quarrel with joseph smith you know you have everything to gain by calling your enemy or your you know defraud you know def- defamating uh the prophet right defamating joseph smith and you know he never he never ever says that he never saw uh what he saw right he never says that the manifestations that he saw were fake or that Joseph Smith was uh, a fraud or anything like that. And so taking that into account, someone that has everything to gain from that, I mean, you know, there's, there's definitely some realness to this, you know?
1: Yeah. And I, I think the witnesses do prevent, present a very, like the, one of the strongest arguments for kind of um, reconciling Joseph Smith's character in The Prophet Puzzle. Uh, I think we're going to go into more detail in that in a, in like probably the next episode, but yeah i I think yeah. there is some substance, yeah definitely to that claim that we can't It's hard to be dismissive with that kind of evidence so I, the,
2: I do wanna um i I do want to bring up one thing, and I'm glad you brought this up, Brandon, about the content issue because I wrote about it specifically um I do have to point out that that is one of the limitations because like the catalyst theory theory is um uh for people who aren't familiar with like philosophy and stuff i don't blame you <laughs> i don't expect anyone to like dive deep into stuff so for Kant, the way he described like how we interpret reality is that everything is sort of intra-psychic everything's within the mind and everything he experiences is being filtered through like the brain and the mechanism that is the mind and so it's impossible to know what things are actually like outside of conscious experience in the mind. And so when, when we talk about Joseph Smith seeing God and seeing the first vision or experiencing these revelatory experiences, there is no way that scientifically we can address the issue, whether or not he actually like objectively saw God outside the mind. And so I, I want to, and the reason I bring this up is because, you know, people have like these, seminary answers like oh well you know you just have to have faith or um uh you know it's sort of based on faith you know whether you believe that Joseph Smith saw God or not and that's actually the case you know like that's not people like reducing or simplifying people's doubts like at the end of the day at the end of this complex argument like that's the, the question that you have to answer with faith like despite Joseph Smith's experience and how congruent it is with the cognitive science and psychology. Did he actually see God as the thing in itself or was it all within like his mind? And there's no way to address that issue. And so I think people need to be more generous or more sympathetic when, when we get there at church and people say, well, you just need to have faith because that's literally the case. Like that's the limitation you're up against. And so
1: kind of see this, you know, there's two camps, the people who just admit that it's all based on faith uh, and then the camp that tries to mix basically everything science with with uh, religion, and they kind of don 't do a super yeah can i
3: I kind of want to opinionate on this now that we 're talking about Kant I, I you know I was looking into things that Jordan Peterson was saying about uh, Kant and i I really enjoyed think something that he said he was talking about I think it was in an interview with uh, some lady named sue i can 't remember her last name, but so he was talking about consciousness and how uh, you can 't just dismiss. Uh, God as as uh, as deity, or you can't just dismiss religion. And how uh, atheism is oversimplifying things. And so he was saying that, uh, for example, Kant. He has this very black and white view. He says, like, if the if the whole world was to follow this concept, like th- that's what makes it morally right or morally wrong. Like he's very black and white about the ways that he says things. And so with religion, you kind of see that as well, right? That you have like the Ten Commandments, and you have uh, these. Uh, precepts that you follow and, and whatnot. And so you see this like structure, right? And you fall in and you can easily fall into uh, dogmatism, right? And that's what we try to avoid. And I think everyone would be okay with saying we try to avoid dogmatism. We try to avoid cult-like behavior and things like that. Yeah. But so what Jordan Peterson is getting at and what I you know just found super interesting and, and uh, I really fell in love with this idea was that this is where the idea or the role of the Holy Ghost plays, right? because it's this spirituality uh, with juxtaposed to this dog to this structure. So uh, if you're, if you're, if I'm illustrating this right, let's say you have a structure that you, that you obey, that you listen to these rules that you listen to, there needs to be a, an identity or a role, something that can, that can uh, break the structure and have you also think, or have you also uh, act away from it. So for example, so I had a, a companion on my mission. We have the rule, like don't touch women inappropriately, right? On the mission. And so he, he uh, took this rule and he, he took it a little far, too far, right? And so he wouldn't even like, he would barely like shake a no girl's hands hand, hand, right? handshakes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like no handshakes. Like he would, he took it like really far. And so it's like really this like dogmatic approach to, to the rules, right? And so I asked him like, you know, what, uh, what would you do if a woman was to like be injured or something like that on the street? Would you go and help her? right? And so he said, no, he's like, I would call someone to help me help her. And so on, you know, you can see how morally it's wrong, right? How obviously it's our responsibility to go and help others. And because there's this dogmatic view, it doesn't allow you to do that. And so giving this, giving more of a, of a space for a Holy spirit, for a, a um, interpretation for leaving the, the structure allows you to make morally correct decisions away from the structure. So for example, like Nephi killing Laban or, you know, all these different examples that you might have. Mm-hmm. And so uh, what I, what I want to get to with this is that uh, you, you see this resurgence, especially in culture, right? And you see that uh, when, you, when you have uh, a church body that becomes very dogmatic, then all of a sudden, you know, there's a resurgence in spirituality. And so you don't want too much of either one. Right. Because if you have too much dogmatism, then you can, you can have like a totalitarian leader that, you know, nobody thinks for themselves, but if you have too much spirituality, then there's anarchy. Right. And nobody, everyone's just following the spirit quote unquote, and nobody's following any structure or any rules or anything like that. So, and so, uh huh.
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I think everything you're saying is great. I want to get back to the book of Abraham, but I do want to make a quick comment on what you just said there. And that is, and, and without diving in, so if we can um, go back to the, the Book of Abraham problems. But I think what you said there is, is really what people who have encountered these problems outlined in the CES letter need to hear is that there is a space for them, that they are welcome, and that they don't see everyone as just a bunch of dogmatic people believing on faith. of like what we just said there so i'm contradicting um myself what i just said about how everything just comes down to faith because in the end we still need to be um there's a balance really reasonable here and we can't we can't just be ridiculous like and and argue these these book of abraham problems um like from that kind of perspective because what it does is it it doesn't answer the questions that people have when they read the ces letter And oftentimes, you know, I I think what we need to another view. So besides the three views that we just presented in the prophet puzzle, another view that you can take here um, is basically that, you know what, I don't know. It's basically what Nephi said, you know, I don't understand all things, you know, but this is what I do know, right? That either I have a personal relationship with God that I feel is satisfying, or I have a relationship with the church that I feel is satisfying my spiritual needs. I don't know any of this book of Abraham stuff. It all just seems wacko to me, but that doesn't affect my lived Mormon experience. And I think this is the quote that I actually really like. I think it was by Brigham Young. And when he was referring to Joseph Smith, uh, this should, I have a link, I can find it later, but he talks about how, you know, I don't care if Joseph Smith was a a uh, a fraud if he was sleeping with other people's wives and if he was cheating because for me the work that he produced is so great and so profound that that's all that matters to me so i i think what we have trouble here when talking about the book of abraham is is that it immediately begs the question of was joseph smith one of these three things a liar was he stupid or was he evil right and we don't even like to answer that question because for some reason it seems to relate to our lived experience you know when we go to church our spiritual community our personal relationship with God and it seems to be deeply connected with that in some weird way when it doesn't actually seem to be connected in that way Um, but I want to leave room for whoever just you know, who cares about everything in the CSR argument, as long as basically I'm having a good time at church and this is what works for me. I want to
0: leave that space. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, well, from your, what you just said, Brandon, and from Andre said, what I get from that is you're saying like there's this framework, like taking what Andre said about the extreme dogmatism versus extreme spiritualism where you don't want an authority. This is a, a framework in which you can approach A lot of these issues such as the book of Abraham and you can say well yes you know I'm not going to be dogmatic and stick my head in the in the sand and stick my head in the sand and say I don't care because I know this and maybe you're kind of trying to find that balance but you're not also swinging to the other side and saying well wow this is opening up whole can of words maybe everything that I've ever known is just totally just a bunch of nonsense so I'm leaving the church but kind of approaching these types of CES letter uh things for faithful members that are already having a good experience with some balance where they don't need to swing to either side of the extreme. Is that kind of what you're getting at?
3: Dude, yeah, I would completely agree with that, Justin, because you, you, that is something that's so wrong. You can see this as people dive into this thing, these things, like the CES letter, the book of Abraham. There's so many things that are, that are sometimes disingenuous. Sometimes they're genuine questions. And there are these, these questions that do, like you say, open up a can of worms, right? And, and you have... People that start to completely, their, their entire belief system starts to corrupt. And this is awful, right? And this is what Jordan Peterson talks all the time that, you know, when people's uh, belief systems start to corrupt, I mean, you, you have a disaster on your hands. And so you can't, you have to avoid the dogmatism uh, exactly for that reason, right? You don't want to be too um, black and white that you say like, you know, the first thing that comes and shakes the ground, you know, all of a sudden I don't have anything to stand on, right?
1: And I think this is really interesting coming from you, Andre, because you know we originally put you on this panel as kind of the dogmatic guy, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but like I think kind of going through even just these five <laughs> episodes, you've maybe I maybe I'm wrong. Like, tell me if I'm wrong, but you've you've had a change of perspective on how you view these issues.
3: Yeah, I, I have had a change of perspective. Actually, in the last probably two years, I've had uh, a change of perspective, and and we know that from at least from my family life, you know, there's a lot of. uh There's, there's a lot of multicultural, uh, in my family. And so a lot of different ideas that are always sprouting up. And so in order for me to not, uh, have a shaky foundation or in order for me to not be changing my lifestyle every like three months, I need to have some sort of, some sort of structure, which the, yeah, the structure is what, you know, this is the dogmatic part that we're talking about. So in my life, I'm, I'm trying to be very structured, right? But then I'm also very open to having, this is why I really like this idea because it's allowed me to approach life in a way that uh, I can keep moving forward without, you know, having to take two steps back every time I hear a new idea.
1: Perfect. And I think, right. The reason why people are uncomfortable to even listen to this podcast is because for church, for them, church's stability, you know, one of the basic principles of preach my gospel Is look for the needs of people and one of the basic needs is that they want stability in an ever-changing world and so like just talking about Joseph Smith's reputation in the profit puzzle is deeply troubling for most members I would say Um, but we're gonna just forget that because this is small talk with the Lees and we're talking about we're trying to provide an open space to talk about these issues for those that it's actually troubling And so I think we switch back. I want to go back to the Book of Abraham translation process and what Alejandro was saying about uh, kind of a higher consciousness experience. We've kind of argued that for the first vision, you can make a good argument that that's what he's having. I want to ask Alejandro what what evidence he thinks there is for that, as far as the Book of Abraham translation goes. And I'm just going to present uh, a few things right on the off the bat. And that's going to be first of all he seems to be sincere in that um, David Bakovoy and Terrell Givens, uh, uh, they would agree with me. And they're both two serious scholars who have looked into the book of Abraham issues more than most people have. And the thing is they they see it as that Joseph Smith was deeply sincere in everything he did, which is opposed to Dan Vogel's theory, which is Joseph Smith was consciously and rationally aware that he was being deceptive, but he was doing it for a greater good. And so I think one point of evidence in, in favor of Terrell Gibbons and David bakavoy 's view is that first of all, Joseph Smith, I, we, we talked about this in the last ep, uh, two episodes ago, I think. He purchased the papyri scrolls for like, I can't remember, it's been a while, but a couple thousand bo- dollars in his time, which is going to be like 76,000 US dollars in our time, 2020. So like he, he spent a large investment and you can see that as like, Hey, he was just trying to trick everybody or that, Hey, he was sincere about this artifact um, in his translation process, being a catalyst for it. And so I'm going to put that point out there. And, and so I guess Alejandro, like what else do you see as evidence that Joseph Smith was actually experiencing Uh, a higher state of consciousness to produce the book of Abraham rather than he was simply being deceptive when he was studying Egyptian characters. He's trying to fool the scribes that he was, he knew Egyptian when he knew that he didn't, you know, what, what is, what do you see here? Um,
2: Okay. Yeah. Great question. And this is where things get kind of complicated. Um, As you read Joseph Smith's experiences, excuse me, with revelation and mysticism, Uh, the DNC I think is a great example where, there are times where Joseph Smith will um, have these mystical experiences, but not just with him, but with other people. And um, and the the way that he goes about doing these things, it, it, he usually engages in one of these disruptive strategies that I was talking about earlier, like meditation or fasting, where him and his companions or his colleagues would go into like a forest to like meditate and pray, and then um, and or they would lay on the grass and like. Uh, Sort of engage in some type of contemplation or meditation, and then they that would induce like. This is affection. where they're like
1: snuggle with each other, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways. Yes, sorry. yes,
2: inside joke, right? <laughs> anyways. Um,
1: Platonically. <laughs>
2: yeah, but um, they would engage in these practices, and then that would induce like a mystical experience, and that would provide the content for revolution. So as far as the, the Book of Abraham goes um Joseph Smith is also kind of like what the church essay describes is also engaging in these practices um and and look Joseph Smith he's kind of a an interesting character he's not your average Joe as um paradoxical as that sounds um he's like for decades now he's engaging these in these like practices and experiencing these higher states of consciousness and so for him having the papyra and then like contemplating like what's going on I it sounds to me like he is just constantly engaging in these practices and having these mystical experiences that create the sense of um, realness or heightened sense of onto normativity and then he's producing the content for the book of Abraham and what, what we have to understand when we talk about this is um, we have to understand like a little bit about phenomenology and what that Can is explain is, that
1: term for those unfamiliar
2: yeah for sure so phenomenology is sort of a, a, a scientific perspective or a method in which you take the position that the subject is, the, is at the center of experience and what he's experiencing is is essentially real um, because the problem with the objective scientific position is that it, it strips out the subjective and the subject out of it so Basically, to put it in terms more simply, what's phenomenological is describing something from the subject's point of view. So for Joseph Smith, he's engaging with these ancient texts, right, either on papyro or the gold plates or whatever, and by through some method, right, right which um, through some method, he's producing other texts in English. And so phenomenologically, right, from the point of view of the subject, he's engaging in what he believes is translation. And he probably believes that like it's hundred percent true and real because of the onto of his experiences. And because what Joseph Smith is doing is sort of hard to categorize. The term translation is like the most accurate term that Joseph Smith can use to describe what he's doing.
1: So I looked up this, uh, uh word translation in the, I think it was the 1828 Webster's dictionary, the online version. Um, uh-huh it the like first four or five results had nothing to do with producing like from one character to another character it was talking about like taking one idea and transforming it into another idea kind of i don't know how relevant that is to the discussion about loose and, and tight translation here but i do want to put out kind of the perspective that when joseph smith anytime joseph smith uses the word translation um, I'm not sure if us as modern people are thinking of it, uh, in the wrong perspective in that Joseph Smith, wasn't thinking of translation as translation. And I get that we have the gale, I get that we have the side by side, you know, um, letter to paragraph, but here's the thing, even in the gale, Joseph Smith had something called five degrees, which is he would trans, okay, quote unquote, translate the Egyptian character as mm-hmm. like one sentence or one paragraph and then each degree he would expand out and it would get bigger and bigger and it's like what is going on here why would one egyptian character be able to say like paragraphs of information and this goes back to the understanding of how eight, 19th century people thought of egyptian was that it was a code language where a character could represent tons and tons of sentences um but just mm-hmm. just like from that we already can can know that joseph smith's Thinking of translation, at least not in the perspective of Google Translate, where you put in one word and out shoots another word. Um, that's an interesting idea, and and that might even have
2: more confluence with the catalyst theory because the catalyst theory is that an object or or something catalyzes a process by which like a bunch of content, spiritual content, is produced, and so that idea of well maybe maybe the the papyra or the mummies um uh provoked like a numinous or spiritual or revelatory experience and then smith um uh, engaging in these practices was able to take these and then translate them in the sense that you're talking into like a, a book of abraham type of thing that could be one explanation for it either way either way whether it's uh him taking an idea and then like Translating it and like sort of embellishing it and transforming it um, seems to fit and but and but then also to, the position where um, you know the, these objects are are provoking a revelatory experience, and then he he believes he's translating. I think he can make both I think he can make a case for both of those that one, the the practices that he was engaging in are the type of practices that induce higher states of consciousness, two. That these states induce a higher uh, a heightened sense of realness or onto, onto normativity, and then three, Justice Smith is sincere about his lived experience his lived experience um, engaging in that and and i you know
1: I, I don't think he's lying but he's trying to be true to his experience so I, yeah. I like what you said there um I think we talked about kind of changing paradigms and mm-hmm. and we reference maybe like Daniel Peterson as as one of these. Uh, as one of the paradigms you can keep after studying the CS letter. And so one thing I want to make clear here is that even like apologists for the church, they're going to view translation, not as this, you know, Joseph Smith directly translate one-to-one, especially for the book of Abraham case, maybe the book of Mormon's a little bit different, but even there, I've heard Royal Skalsen. He's the guy that studied the manuscripts for like 15 years. They argued For a very loose translation perspective where Joseph Smith, you know, all the revelation is coming into a human mind. And then so what's being laid out in the translation, so to say, is something that is already tainted with a human mind. So it's going to be clearly different from what even what God, let's say, would want Joseph Smith to say. Um, in some ways maybe maybe in just the way he words it right this is the way translation works even for modern people is we don't do a one-to-one translation we make it make sense in the other language and keep the beauty right. of it. and so yeah.
0: so i think but, like yeah oh i was just going to say like even like on my mission when i had to help translate for the people that spoke chinese and when they were speaking english they would say something really weird like in english about they make some type of analogy that would only make sense to Americans. So then I would, when I was translating, I would give them an example that was in Chinese that was totally different, but I was just helping them try to understand it. So it doesn't seem, I don't think most people view translation as, as like a word to word translation. It's kind of like, how am I going to convey this? idea best to, to these, to these people.
1: Exactly. So like if we think of it phenomenologically, Joseph Smith is thinking, how do I convey these religious truths? That's the catalyst theory best so that people, Around me in 19th century burned over District America can understand it, right? And so um they asked the question at benchmark books with Terrell Gibbons, though. He said, Hey, is this just a problem of of how we word the word translation? And Terrell Gibbons made a good point. He said, No, because we still have to deal with the fact that Abraham uh Joseph Smith talked about Abraham writing this on with his own hand on papyri and I'm translating. So I do want to cover that um, because that is a serious problem for the Catalyst Theory. It just keeps going back to this quote. I think it's in the Times of the Season. It probably wasn't written by Joseph Smith, but it's directed by him. And it's pretty clear that Joseph Smith kind of claimed that in general, that he translated from papyri. That's why he had it displayed for people to see. Um, but I do want to kind of explore that a little bit. Like what, what would Joseph Smith mean if we are to take the Terrell Givens Dan, uh, David Balkavoy's side that Joseph Smith is, is uh, sincere in that he believes he's, he's in some way translating an idea to an idea from papyri, then what does he mean by Abraham wrote this himself on papyri? And I think uh, just to start us off with that discussion, I can see that someone who is, let's say, quote unquote, more connected with the divine than we are typically on a day-to-day basis in his higher state of consciousness, kind of what you outlined Alejandro there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could see that he's taking this from a different perspective and that if he were to have, let's say some type of vision where he's seeing these, these profound religious ideas about the pre-mortal life and for ordination et cetera, that he is just, he sees that as more real than, than his physical experience, like his day-to-day life. And so when he sees like Abraham receiving these ideas and maybe he's, uh, you know, imagining it in his head that Abraham's writing on a piece of papyri, it just seems so real to him. And so he has no problem saying this was written with Abraham's own hand of papyri. You know,
0: I, Mm. I, I... do you kind of see what I'm saying here? I, I just kind yeah, of yeah, I, I that he's thinking of this. You what know, what came into mind is because for me, whenever I thought of prophets, I never, I didn't think of someone that like God came and like whispered into his ear like, oh, these ten things are going to happen, or like Lehi, like God came and said, hey Lehi, this does, this Jerusalem is going to get destroyed. But rather, I've, I've viewed prophets more as someone that has they're so in tune and with like the inherent patterns of the world and, and the stories and, and these things so that they can see kind of where the society, the society is kind of headed towards. And perhaps Joseph Smith was one of, was had this visionary mind where he was so in tune with these different, you know, structures of society and he kind of saw the inherent patterns of Christianity and what he saw as what was wrong with it. And in doing the translation, he's, Maybe he, he does think that he's like looking into these words and stuff, but he's saying, what c- exactly can I convey as a religious message to convey these truths? So he's And he's really trying to push it forward in that manner. That That's just something that, that comes to mind as you were saying that. Yeah, yeah. I,
3: I think I would just opinionate real, there. Real I would say – uh, uh-huh.
1: Real quick, I'm just going to say we got five minutes. I think this episode, we're going to end with this discussion, and then we're just going to – uh, the next one, we're going to dive into the other theories of the puzzle prophet here in a minute, but let's close off with your guys' ideas. Yeah. On the, on the written by his own hand.
3: There's definitely something to be said about this higher state of consciousness. I mean, you can even find statements. Like I found a statement, president David O McKay would say that after he would finish reading a, a nice book that inspired him, he would say that he was, it was written by one of the minor prophets. Right. And so, this idea of getting inspiration and getting a a higher level of consciousness is a way of, of seeing those things around you. Right. And so, um, I probably take, I probably still take Hugh Nibley's approach where I, I don't think if I was reading or if I, when I'm reading the book of Abraham and I see that it was written by the hand of Abraham, I really don't think that that's literal. Um, you know, just because, uh, it just seems very unlikely. Right. First of all, like I didn't even have to look at the, uh, at the dating or anything like that of the papers. And I, you know, I obviously didn't think that it was written by by Abraham because he was just lived so long ago. Right. And so I might take the approach of, of saying that he, it is this, you know, catalyst that he's interpreting something uh, he's receiving this revelation and it is the story of Abraham. Right. And so to say that it's, it's Abraham's story and it's being told to him uh, from Abraham's perspective. Right. And so this is this, written in the hand of Abraham uh, at least to me is what what I get off of it okay
1: and yeah yeah Alejandro did you want to say anything on that
2: um yeah um so if we're we're going to be talking about higher states of consciousness and a phenomenology we have to like really we we can't we have to really follow through on it and so um for Joseph Smith when he buys the mummies and and the papyra and he's engaging in this translation process. Um, Joseph Smith right, obviously is not an academic. He's he's not describing any of this in like objective terms, and his experience is highly subjective, and um, and he describes it that way. Um, and so when so if you're going to take the position that these objects catalyzed content, right, and that Joseph Smith is um, speaking in terms that are not necessarily objective terms, then it follows that, um, that uh, hold on, let's see. So after you examine his work, right. After he's done all this and you examine his work objectively, you start to realize that like what he has produced is something more akin to pseudepigrapha, which we discussed earlier.
1: Yeah. We haven't discussed pseudepigrapha on, on the podcast episodes that have been published yet. But, oh, we haven't. Oh, yeah, we're gonna get oh, well, to that um, in in this next episode.
2: Oh, okay. Uh, so pseudepigrapha, um in a nutshell is people who write works in the name of other people, and it's not like necessarily uh, his- historical. Um, but if you're if you're claiming if you're taking the position that these objects catalyzed an experience by which he was able to produce content, and that. Um, Joseph Smith is describing all of this subjectively. It makes sense that the papyrus shows up in like this pseudepigrapha because it's those objects that are like provoking these, this catalyst thing for him. Mm.
1: Yeah. So so I, sorry, do you guys have anything else to say on that, that question of on his own, uh, on his own hand, by his own hand, by his own hand. No. Okay. Um, I think this is a great place to stop this episode. Pseudepigrapha is really where it gets, um, that's where the good stuff comes in because here you have the argument of Dan Vogel's pious fraud, uh, which is Joseph Smith knows that he's writing pseudepigrapha, but he still claims that it's it's literally Abraham writing it when he knows it's not versus the Terrell Givens, Uh, Ann Taves kind of view. I'm going to get into that in this next episode on The Prophet Puzzle and how maybe Ann Taves presents an interesting argument about how Joseph Smith could be unaware that he is producing pseudepigrapha and still kind of get him out of this loop of where he's not trying to consciously deceive and that he doesn't. Um, that he actually believes it's jo- abraham writing it and he's not doing this as a, a mode of deception so thank you for listening i hope this episode on the Callous theory was enlightening and we're gonna dive into the question of the prophet puzzle more in the next
0: episode as it's stumbled out it said The chance. I was living like a zombie, head in a trance.